0: Welcome to this bonus episode of Startups to the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Several weeks ago, along with producer Xander on the MicroConf team, we started doing a live stream called MicroConf On Air. And first it was every day, and then we transitioned to do it twice a week. And I had some really good conversations with founders, with copywriters, like Leanna Patch came on and did live copy audits that were super valuable for the MicroConf audience, the MicroConf community. And late last week, I had a really interesting conversation with Cortland Allen, the founder of Indie Hackers, And we we shaped the conversation around what Cortland Allen has learned interviewing 155 startup founders, but we also talked about what he's learned building a community from scratch. And it was such a good conversation that I wanted to throw it here in this podcast feed because as I listened to it, I was inspired and I felt like I took things away from it and felt like it would make a, a, a great short Startups for the Rest of Us episode. So here it is. I hope you enjoy it. Cortland Allen, sir. Nice to see you. Thanks for joining me on Microconf on Air today.
1: Thanks for having me, Rod. It's nice to see you as well.
0: Absolutely. So, I have uh, my in- standard intro stuff I'm going to run through, and then we're going to dig in. Just a pretty cool topic with Cortland, who has a lot of experience, uh, you know, working with with developers, indie hackers who are building their companies. So, welcome to today's episode of MicroConf on Air. As always, I'm your host, Rob Walling. Um, Cortland I- Allen and I, as I said, are going to dig through his experience building indie hackers. He's he's done something pretty unique that most people don't do, which is to build a, a community site Almost virtually from scratch, which is it was a very hard thing to do, and and he's kept it up for years. Um, they were acquired by Stripe several years ago, and he's interviewed 150, 160 startup founders, uh, on his podcast, Indie Hackers, the Indie Hackers podcast, many of you listen to. And I know that when you talk to that many founders, you start seeing patterns, and that's the kind of stuff we're going to dig into today. It's just some lessons he's learned, thought processes, you know, po- positive patterns, anti-patterns, and that kind of stuff. If you are not already in Microconf Connect which is uh, MicroConf's Slack channel. It's our online community. We have almost a thousand founders and aspiring founders in there. That's where folks are gonna be able to ask questions of Cortland and myself today. So head to microconfconnect.com and apply if you'd like to be part of future conversations. Of course, you can always just watch this live stream on MicroConf on air com As a reminder, MicroConf On Air podcast is live as of a couple of weeks ago, so if you want to hear any of these episodes, if you miss any of them and want to just hear them asynchronously and not have to log into YouTube and watch a video, which I, you know, not something I do, my generation doesn't tend to do a lot of that. Um, I personally am subscribed to my, the MicroConf On Air podcast and I'm uh, kind of listening back to figure out, you know, what we can do to to improve it. I think there's always room for improvement. As always, thanks to Basecamp and Stripe. They're our headline partners, and uh, you know we, we do a lot of this with their help. So thank you so much. So Cortland Allen, founder of Indie Hackers, are you holed up there in San Francisco? Everything going well?
1: I am. I haven't seen anybody that I know in the last month, except for uh, my local grocers, who I guess I'm on a first-name basis with, but that's pretty much it. Hold up, playing video yeah. games, playing poker, doing a lot of work, uh, honestly having fun with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I've been seeing you put out some articles and video interviews. You've been doing a lot of pretty, pretty topical stuff. Uh, I think you were mentioning that the con- your content is moving more towards uh, maybe news or, or like current events type stuff. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think... Um, it's something I've always avoided in the past, just because it's it's a little bit harder. Uh, there's just like a shorter turnaround time. If you're doing things that are current, you basically have to plan for episodes, record them, and get them out the door extremely quickly. They're less evergreen; they become less re- relevant over time. But there are some other advantages that I think make them uh, sort of the news approach very attractive. And also, I think just with the way the global conversation is going on, uh, you know, I had a really great episode lined up for the Indie Actors podcast. It was sort of a debate between Natalie Nagel of Wild Bit and uh, DHH from Basecamp on work-life balance. And I was so excited mm-hmm. to release this thing. And then you know a month passed and I think the release date was supposed to be last week. And I emailed both of them and I was like, I just don't feel right even tweeting about yeah. this. And it just seems so off topic and yeah. they both agreed. So I think there's just been a shift and it's harder to to sort of do business as usual when everybody's talking about you know, the fact that we're in a worldwide pandemic and there's a huge global mm-hmm. recession coming.
0: Yeah, the conversation has certainly changed. We've been, you know, we've almost, well, it was, I would say it's unintentional, but I, when we moved into the news stuff, you know, we did a, a big uh, live week about um, COVID-19. What well, really the, the SBA loan, the Paycheck Protection Program, yep. and that was... The kind of really the first time we had done something like that, you know, and done something that was super topical. We threw it together in like two days, um, but it turned out really well. And we had, you know, f- I don't know, 350, 400 people on the live stream. And again, with 48 hours notice, it was pretty good. And it's received a lot yeah, it's of great. Um, watches since then. So, yeah, it's a trip. The conversation is ever a changing. So I wanna dig in, you know, prior to this, uh, you and I emailed a little bit and I was I was saying, you know, this is the topic I'd love to cover. Do you have any bullet point thoughts on, you know, things that you have learned, uh, whether it was growing indie hackers or from interviewing other founders? And you sent me this great outline. I, I figured you'd send me like, six bullet points but it was like really well thought out things did you have that put together in advance like is that a book outline you have or is that no, out you know what that out just, as an email
1: is i missed your email about the stimulus thing and i felt really bad about it and so when i saw your email about the list i was like i need to put some effort into this because i missed rob's last email <laughs> oh, and so i just started oh, okay. typing uh and it was very stream of consciousness which i okay. think runs the risk that there might be a lot of recency bias here this might not be you know, the things sure. that I've learned from 155 interviews might be the things that I've learned from, like, the last 20 interviews that have been on my mind lately. Right. Um, right. But uh, they're things that I feel pretty strongly about, and they might change. They're all opinions. They're all beliefs. I wouldn't say any of them are mm-hmm. facts that are set in stone. Uh, probably at any point in time that you've asked me what I've learned from the people I've talked to and the things that I've done, I would have given you completely different answers. So this is Quirtland, mm-hmm. April 2020 version of, of what I've learned from Indie Hackers.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. One, one of the things you said... Um, is that the advice to start a B2B rather than a B2C company is a bit like telling people to eat their green vegetables and not eat a bunch of carbs. They'll yeah. probably be healthier if they listen, but the advice itself misses the underlying principle of why an idea is actually good or bad. T- talk us through that a little bit because I, when I am sure, I'm not sure I understand the connection. Like when mm. I say don't eat vegetables or when I tell my kids eat vegetables, not carbs, the reason they don't want to eat their vegetables is because they don't taste good, whereas French fries do. <laughs> but I, is that what you're saying? Is like B2C companies are really fun? They taste good? And in essence, they're fun to start, whereas B2B or not? Or what, what's your thought uh, there?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of things. Um, number one, they are fun to start. A lot of people want to start B2C businesses. Even when I started in ND Hackers. Uh, one of the items of my checklist was I wanted to start a business that I could tell my friends and family about, that they could use, that they would be excited about, that would be interesting to them, just because as consumers, we mostly interact with B2C businesses in our in the course of our lives. Like We very rarely see what's going on behind the scenes of businesses, and so I think they're very attractive to start, um, but they have some unique challenges, which is kind of why we end up giving the advice to go B2B, because it kind of goes against what people's sort of intuitive, um, sort of like, I guess, almost automatic... Uh, desire is when they first become founders. I do think the advice is a little bit coarse. Um, I think, you know, I had an ex-girlfriend who talked about the color diet and was literally eat foods that are these colors, (laughs) sort of a shorthand. And there really was like a directive and they like, don't eat white foods, eat green foods. Mm -hmm. And I think if you do that, like, okay, great. You'll probably eat a lot of vegetables. Uh, You probably won't eat a lot of carbs, but it's just really coarse advice. It doesn't really get down to the nitty gritty of someone, let's say, who's looking at their macros and counting carbs and counting protein, grams of protein and counting fat, et etc., who's actually looking at sort of like the first principles and the underlying reasons why certain foods are bad or good. And if you just sort of follow the higher, higher level advice, uh, you might still mess up, right? You might just eat nothing but green Jolly Ranchers all the time and wonder mm-hmm. why, you know, you're not healthy. So I think with B2B, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, more lucrative than B2C on average. I think on Andy Hackers, did an analysis like a year ago. And in our product directory, we have like thousands of people's products with the revenue numbers. The ones that were B2B were making on average four times more revenue than the ones that were B2C. But I do think there are some extremely lucrative B2C businesses. You just have to be careful and follow the underlying principles um, that lead to people paying basically for something of value. Businesses make money, generally, more than consumers, and they have a higher cap on how much money they can make. They're also more concerned, therefore, with saving money than I think consumers are, because it's, there's just more money to be saved. And so it's easier to pick a valuable problem that businesses care about. And so, generally speaking, like B2B is not a bad way to go. But I think if you're actually looking at those principles, you can ask, okay, well, how do consumers make money? What do consumers care a lot about? Right? What is a problem that if I have consumers, they're not going to get fickle and leave, they're not going to only be willing to pay me $5 a month for, et cetera? If you look at those underlying principles, there's lots of areas. For example, probably the way the consumers see themselves making the most money is through their job. And people imagine all sorts of avenues for how they can get a raise at their job or get a job in a better industry, and usually that comes in the form of education, and, yeah, maybe people only want to pay 5 or 10 bucks a month for your to-do list app and maybe they'll churn because it's not that important, but people are willing to pay 40 or $50,000 a year for the right education, which is a crazy amount. And so, I think the same principles apply if you actually understand why businesses or consumers spend money and you're like, you know, a little bit disciplined in, in making sure that your business focuses on solving valuable problems for people, solving problems that have high reach, solving problems that people are unlikely to churn from because they're important. Uh, then consumers can be just as lucrative of a target market as any business.
0: Nice. Love it. Thanks for that explanation. For folks in MicroConf Connect uh, and the MicroConf on Air channel, if you do, we have plenty to talk about today, but I'm happy to bring in if you have any questions for for Cortland uh, as we go through it. Another thing you said that I really liked, you said oftentimes there really is one weird trick or secret sauce that powers a lot of a business's success. Usually it's some sort of moat. Some moats can be insurmountable. And founders are happy to talk about those in public for example first mover advantage network effect but lots of businesses this is, rings so true for me which is why you know in my experience yeah. myself and with other founders but lots of businesses have more fragile moats and they they're loath to reveal on the air they would they would basically never want to expose them because they're things that can be attacked you want to talk yep. how, you know a little more about that embellish on that
1: yeah, I mean it's it's a side effect of having a podcast. You have these conversations with founders before they come on, you're talking about different things and then I always ask when someone comes on my show, you know, is there anything you really want to get into the episode and anything you really don't want to talk about? And very often there's some strategic things that are important to a business's success that they won't want to talk about on the air. Um and very often there there are things that you know, founders just say no, it's all it's all fine. I'll talk about anything. And what I've noticed is that generally speaking Uh, When people don't want to talk about things, it's because they're worried about the competition. They're worried about Mm -hmm. the fact that they haven't quite built a moat that um, others can't really cross. And When they're coming on the podcast to share their revenue numbers and how big their business is, uh, but they do feel like the sense of, it all might fall apart. Somebody might come back and, and, you know, and build what we've done better and take all of our customers. There's just more to love to share those types of things. Um, mostly, those, those tend to fall into the category of distribution channels, distributional advantages. So I won't name any names, but for example, there's a, podca- uh, a podcast I did with a founder who has a fast-growing business. It's up and coming. They're making um, five figures a month, doing really well. And a lot of their growth comes from innovation and and some some SEO strategies and some keywords that they're ranking for that, you know, are a bit unintuitive or you wouldn't really think that that would lead to Mm -hmm. customers. And for that, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you reveal those keywords, you talk about that and someone really gets, you know, an idea like, hey, I want to do the same thing. I'm competing with you. Uh they're gonna compete with you. And now suddenly like mm-hmm. this free traffic you've been getting is gonna be extremely difficult to maintain. You're gonna have to constantly write new content and use different tricks to get more backlinks to sort of maintain your lead because it's kind of like you know every search engine results page is a little bit of a winner take all or you know, zero sum game. If you
0: mm-hmm. move
1: down the ranking, someone else moves up and vice versa. So that's a good example. I've seen others um, where they just like have other distributional advantages. Um, they have good sources of customers, good sources of leads, and they just don't want their competitors to know about those. And those aren't like solid moats. Anybody, if they found those distribution channels, could make the same moves and compete with you. You know, another mm-hmm. moat that's really not that solid is product. And I think more and more founders are getting away from thinking that their product is something that others can't copy. People are pretty good at writing code nowadays. They're pretty fast. Um, But then there are some of these more insurmountable modes. If you have a significant first-movers advantage, nobody can go back in time and do what you did before you did it. So, if you're able to capitalize on that well, then you're generally happy to go on the air and talk to anybody about how your business worked. Or if you have network effects, this is something that works well with hackers, where essentially we just have a lot of people in the community, and the people, you know, sort of the value of the community isn't me, it's other people helping each other. And so, like, those are really hard for other people to surmount. You can't just say, oh, network effects, you know, let me check that off the list and get that. It's actually a hard slog to get through. And so I'm happy to talk about that. But it's just interesting to me to see that, you know, there actually are very often um, these, these factors that have an outsized influence on a business's success. And oftentimes founders don't want to be completely forthcoming about what's going on there.
0: Yep now i've totally seen that as well uh, you know another interesting moat that is really really hard to break that i think especially early stage entrepreneurs don't think of is brand because brand mm. seems so amorphous but think about stripe as an example yeah. um we could replicate stripes functionality you know it would take some time i mean there are other payment process th- processors that have made it as easy or i would say comparable but none of us are leaving Stripe because A, the, nope. sur- the service itself is amazing and we just trust the brand and the Collison brothers and the whole team has just done an amazing job of maintaining that. And that's why when I, we, you know, we, we've interviewed both John and Patrick uh, you know, uh, at MicroConf, they've told me offline, they're like, you can ask me anything. Like, I'm not, there's no secret sauce that I can't share, you know, right. and, and I'll say, how did you get here? And they're like, well, we worked really hard. We listened to our users and we doubled down on that. And it's really hard to topple. Really hard. It would be really hard to compete with Stripe. Whereas. You know, uh, I can think of examples like, let's say, QuickBooks or or Infusionsoft or back in the day, PayPal. I think they're a little better now. But you know, they people would build entire websites. You know, Infusionsoft sucks, QuickBooks sucks, PayPal sucks. Yep. Like there was su- yep. there was such hatred for it that their brand was like a negative factor, and that leaves f- huge uh, you know an underbelly. And that's why zero you know it was able to get traction against QuickBooks. That's why yep. Stripe was able to get you know traction against all the payment processors because we hated Authorize.net and you know PayPal Web Payments. It's pro because we're such, so kludgy and uh, and on and on. So, anyways, that's just another example for folks to to think about. And that you also have that like Indie Hackers has its own brand. Microconf itself, you know, has its yeah. own brand, right? That would be hard. People we've seen tons of startup conferences, startup communities come and go in the past 10, 15 years, um, and that's part of that is they just don't, you know, they don't build that both the network effect you're talking about, but also also that brand
1: and brand is not an accident i mean uh, the Collison spent a lot of time thinking about stripes brand how many other 35 billion dollar unicorn companies haven't had a massive scandal you know how many ceos yep. are reading all the blog posts and the tweets that come out of their company to make sure that they don't offend people to make sure every hacker news post is positive etc like that takes effort and i think with microconf as well like you guys are very conscious about your brand, you're very conscious about how you run your conferences, how you run your calls. Who's part of the Microconf community, and that just pays dividends over time, as you can sort of associate Microconf with like excellence and trustworthiness and friendliness. Right. Um, and with Indie Hackers, even from the get-go, I was like concerned with some of the more superficial aspects of brand, which were like okay, the colors and the name, et cetera. I put a lot of thought into that early on, um, but later on, like really, what's the mission? What does Indie Hackers represent? And I think all that's part of your brand, just being consistent and showing up every day is, is huge. So I, I think you're right. That's a really big one. And once you've got that in your pocket, then you're happy to talk about everything else because the brand is almost yep. unassailable.
0: Yeah, it's really hard. And and something I read, um, I went deep in branding over the past couple of years just to kind of learn what it was. It, I found it was a blind spot in my experience. Like I had yeah. obviously I came you know technical founder and then moved away from that but then learned marketing and learned all these tactics and then learned more strategic thinking and then I was like man I, I we've built a brand with microconf you know this was a couple of years ago but like we did it a little bit part it was partially intentionally and partially it was just who we were right it, it became right. us and after that I became much more intentional about it but when I read about branding someone said you know brand is not what you project it's what people say about you and what they think mm. about your you know your your company name or whatever you know when you say stripe to a software developer like like what? What do they feel and what do they think? What are the three adjectives in their mind when you say indie hackers? When you say microconf? Um, so, I anyways, uh, just, so Justin Jackson just said, "Hey, Robin Cortland. I think he's watching on the live stream. How's it going, hey, sir?" Question for you that I'm sure you've talked about, but I've never, I haven't heard it. Is you started indie hackers from? Uh, starting a community like that is very, very hard, right? Um, Paul Graham started. Y- I'm sorry, started Hacker News because he had this following of people who were reading his essays. So I had read his essays yeah. for years and and his book. And so when he said he was launching Hacker News, I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll be there. Um, what did you start with? Like, how did you jumpstart? Uh, you know, and I, and I want in, there to be info for people to not to compete with indie hackers. So don't give yeah. away any secret sauce if you have it. But, uh, um, you know, it, if someone wants to start a, com- a community for other types of, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a different niche is really what I'm asking. I'm just
1: yeah, I don't, have any, I don't have any secret sauce with indie hackers because I've got the network effects um, from yeah. the community where there's a really hard to just sort of flip a switch and turn them on. I didn't have a following when I started indie hackers. I had... Maybe 400 followers on Twitter, mostly friends, family, colleagues, and stuff from work. I've been in the tech industry for a while, but I just didn't have an audience. And I, I think it's interesting because there's so much advice to build an audience first before you start your product. And obviously, that can really work. Um, but obviously, there's times where it doesn't work that well. For example, uh, you know, Mike has got an audience. He's had an audience for years. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to become blue-tick customers if they're not the right kind right. of audience for that. Um, so with Indie Hackers, I, I kind of follow this playbook that I got from Peter Levels, who is this digital nomad. He's one of the people who inspired me to do indie hackers in the first place. And what he did was he sort of aggregated this very useful content. He curated it. He made it extremely easy for digital nomads who were doing all this research, trying to figure out where to go, where is safe, what has the best weather, what is the best internet connections. And he just did all that research for them and put it in one place. And that was kind of the key for him to basically not build an audience, but build a source of traffic, a place where people said, Hey, I'll come here instead of doing all this research myself. And then from there he attached a community to it to sort of allow it to become, you know, a more retentive place, a place where people could help each other and they wouldn't just sort of get the information and do a hit and run and leave. And so when I saw the way that he did that, I figured, you know, this could work for probably a lot of ideas, a lot of niches, a lot of industries. And my passion is more about startups. And the thing I find myself spending a lot of time trying to do and and research is trying to find stories of these ND founders who didn't raise money from venture capitalists, who were generating recurring revenue, and and finding out how they did it. These stories just weren't really published in the media. They weren't really popular. I mean, I'd have to go to MicroConf or watch MicroConf videos, basically, to find any of these people. So I thought, okay, what if I could sort of curate some of these stories, put them in one place, and then ask thoughtful questions that sort of satiate the desires of people like me who are actually trying to figure out like how these people did it. Right? I'm gonna make sure everybody shares their revenue numbers, I'm gonna make sure everybody shares their marketing strategies and tactics, et cetera, put them all in one place, try to get a, as much traffic as possible off the back of that, funnel that traffic into a mailing list so I can reach these my audience basically repeatedly. And I did that and it took like a month for me to quote unquote build an audience of a couple thousand people on a mailing list. And that was enough to kind of get a community forum going. So I built a community forum Uh, Early on, there was just, like, me and, like, five or six fake versions of me on different accounts, just having these fake conversations back and forth, trying to make the forum seem lively. And then I would email out these fake conversations, basically, to my mailing list and say, hey, we've got a forum now. You know, we're talking about work-life balance, you know, join the conversation. And every now and then somebody would trickle in. Yeah, a little bit of growth hacking. But, I mean, this is, like, straight from the Reddit playbook, from how they grew Reddit in the the early days when it's just not not that valuable to have a community with just one person in it. And so, uh, eventually, you know, one or two people trickled in, they were talking to one of these accounts that I had. And I remember the first time I saw two people talking to each other, and I thought that I had made it. I was like, this is it. That this was is it. The beginning. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but funny. it was a lot of that for months and months. Just me putting a lot of reps in, making sure the conversation was lively, uh, trying to advertise the conversations until it eventually picked up enough steam of its own to start growing and sort of becoming like a self-perpetuating machine and those are the network effects where people are getting a lot of value from helping each other and there's not much that i have to do
0: yeah very cool and were you working a day job at the time
1: no i had quit so i had okay uh, technically my job at stripe is my first full-time job ever in my life um but i had done some remote contracting work um, just to sort of fund myself for the previous years i was dabbling on side projects and i quit my last job with about a year of runway uh, messed around for six months and ideas that really didn't hold water, that weren't really good. Then I decided to get serious and I spent like a week just like brainstorming an idea. For, eventually, came up with Andy Hackers, and at that point, I had six months of revenue left, uh, six months of runway left mm-hmm. in my bank account. So I had to make it work, and luckily, it worked pretty fast. I think having that pressure was stressful, but it also pushed me to make better decisions faster. And I think if I didn't have that pressure, I probably would have built something that took six months just to launch and, you know, never made yeah. a dime.
0: Well, that comes back to a point. another point you made where you said you think the best hack for motivation is extrinsic or external motivation. Um, tons of people work a 9 to 5 every day because they're doing something they hate, but they do it because there's a boss, right? And they have someone to answer to, they have mouths to feed, and they don't want to disappoint colleagues. Um, And again, I'm just kind of quoting you like too many aspiring founders try to rely 100% on intrinsic motivation, which can be fickle and they wonder why they aren't consistent day to day or week to week. It's probably better just to get a co-founder or advisors slash investors or customers ASAP to keep you honest. It's fascinating.
1: I think that's big. I think that's, that's part of the human psychology. Like we are social creatures. We care a lot about what other people think about us. We really don't want to let down our colleagues or our coworkers. We really don't want to be embarrassed about doing bad work in public. And these things could drive us to act in a way that I think intrinsic motivation, um, just doesn't. It's great to be passionate about what you do. Like I'm very passionate. Like I could write code all day, but there's more to business than just writing code, and the fact that like I have people depending on me to get the next podcast episode out, to write this newsletter, to do all these other things that aren't necessarily my favorite thing in the world is is kind of what pushes me to do these things. And I have
0: yeah.
1: uh, I have friends who've like started companies where they don't have any investors, they don't have any advisors, and like their motivation ebbs and flows constantly. Like your mood changes depending on how much sleep you got and what's going on in your life and what you've eaten today, like all these things can affect your mood. And if that's a hundred percent of what you're relying on to sort of get you to do things that aren't always easy and aren't always fun, then I think you're gonna you're gonna feel it a little bit, you know, like it's a roller coaster and you're kinda going up and down and you're not sure when you're gonna be motivated and when you're not. The trade off is if you have extrinsic motivation, you're gonna be doing things you don't necessarily like at others' behest and because you feel obligated to others. And that's not the best feeling ever. So if, if at all possible, it would be great to do something where you're just 100% intrinsically motivated and that happens to align with exactly what you need to do. That's rarely possible for most founders. Most of the time there's going to be some sacrifices you have to make and I think just having other people to push you is, is a really good hack and it doesn't get talked about enough. We sort of pretend like everybody who does anything is just like this motivation machine and they've got their right. you know, their morning routine that they've set up and they're just naturally interested in everything and it's, just, it's just not. I don't think that's true for most of the people that I talk to.
0: Yeah. It's a good point. And it's, you know, when you talk about extrinsic can be, can make you do things you don't want to do. I think it's, you can kind of even hack that and say, I want to find extrinsically, I want to find extrinsic motivation that agrees with me most of the time or that works side by side. So if you're going to find a co-founder, find someone that you really like working with and that pushes you in good ways, you know, and I've had a number of those relationships. If you're going to take on investors, find the right investors. Don't take on a-holes, you know, and don't take on people who are going to say, if you want to be a $20 million company and they're going to want you to be a billion, like make sure that, you know, the things align. There are ways to do that. Looks like we have a question from the chat um, from Tony of Cloud Forecast. He says, "With all the interviews you've done, and multiple posts you've seen, uh, and all the multiple posts you've seen on Indie Hackers, what is the com- What is the one common thread you see from successful founders?
1: The one common thread. That's um, a tough one. <laughs> I think successful founders usually have a bias towards action." They uh they may or may not like to talk about what they're gonna do. They may or may not spend a lot of time dreaming, but they all eventually like pull the trigger and do things. And this is another thing that I don't think gets talked about all that much. But I go to a lot of indie hackers meetups. I've met like thousands and thousands of people who who want to start things, and that's just a huge hurdle to get over. Like that that difference between, you know, I'm I'm dreaming of this lifestyle, but I've actually taken steps, I'm building something, I'm doing things. Uh, it's really easy to throw a bunch of blockers in your way and say, I can't get started because I don't know how to code or because I haven't quit my job yet or because I don't have the perfect idea. Whereas I think more of the successful founders, they have all these same problems and they just were scrappy and did whatever they could just to make forward progress. So that's one of the things I would say. Another one is um, I think successful founders all have some degree of like inherent optimism. I talk a lot about optimism, optimism cycle where you have to start by believing that you can do something, thinking that it's possible for you to do it. If you believe that something's possible, you'll try much harder to get it done. I gave a talk at MicroConf a couple years ago, and this is sort of like the last quarter of my talk. I had this analogy where I said, you know, if I, if I hid a million dollars from you and it was somewhere in your apartment, how much time would you spend looking for that million dollars? You'd probably tear up every you know, piece of furniture you have, look behind the TV, under the rug, you dig up floorboards because you know it's possible to find it. Whereas if I said, hey, Rob, like I've hit a million dollars somewhere in like the Pacific Ocean, you don't think it's possible to find it, so you're not going to try at all. So I think a lot of founders have optimism that they can do things. That leads to them trying to do those things a little bit harder. If it doesn't work, they try another thing. If it doesn't work, they try another thing. Um, And then eventually they succeed because they're trying harder than others. And then when you succeed, that gives you more optimism and say like, hey, I did this hard thing. And it sort of repeats and the cycle fuels itself. And so I I think that's an important and and overlooked thing. Um, Fake it till you make it. If you don't have the optimism, if you don't have the wins over your belt, uh, under your belt, start small, do something super easy. Uh, Get those wins and, and get yourself to a point where you think you can do certain things. And I think you'll just try more ambitious things over time. And I think it's necessary to try in order to succeed.
0: Awesome, and I've just linked up your um, YouTube or your Microconf talk in the uh, in the chat, so people can check it out. Vulcan didn't know he went to Microconf. Yeah, he spoke there a couple of years ago, and you've attended several Microconf's. So we like to grab dinner with you when you're there. That's fun.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wish I wish uh, we didn't have this global pandemic this year. I wish we
0: could hang out in the next week. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that I like, man. I have this framework. I've written this entire blog post that I haven't published, and I. I've mentioned it in a couple talks that I did. I'm kind of testing the idea, but like mm-hmm. I have this theory in my head about success and like the three factors that go into it. It's a very high level generalized thing, but it's yep. hard work, luck, and skill to varying mm. degrees. So hard work is re- mostly required unless you get really lucky. You know, if you have yeah. 100% luck, then you don't need hard work and skill, but almost no one has that. If you have 99% hard work, you don't need much of the other two. If, the ideal is that you'll have a lot of hard work and a lot of skill and you let luck be what it may. But you talked about, and and I find that hard work is either over, um, what do you, it's like glamorized in the Silicon, mm. you know, the hustle culture, or right. it's dismissed in these stories of like, I just kind of built Facebook in a weekend. And it's a, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, yep. I find that the answer is typically somewhere between there that, yeah, they got a little lucky with a cool idea that hit at the right time, even though there were like five other social networks that were just like it. They had the skill to program it. You know, he had enough skill to be able, he had taught himself these skills and he got, and he worked his ass off. Like, I don't think anyone yeah. could say, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or, or the Collison brothers or any of, I mean, any microconf, you know, person who's had success had, did not have some hard work. And so, you know, you talk about, you, you emailed me, you said burnout and overwork are real and to be avoided, but I think most solar founders are going to have to work very hard in the beginning unless they're very efficient, very lucky or very patient. And yeah, I, so that it comes is very much in line with like my worldview, um, but what's the patient part? Do you mean just that they'd have to wait a very long time to get to the point of, of being able to sustain themselves?
1: I mean, I think when we think about working hard, we're thinking about sort of short bursts of time. We're thinking about, you know, putting in 60 hours in a week. Um, you don't have to do that if you don't feel like you need to succeed in the next couple months, six months, et cetera. I mean, you could work on a blog for five years and you could put a couple hours of work into it every week for five years. I think that's that's patience. That's saying, you know, these five years are going to pass anyway. I don't, I don't have anywhere to be. It doesn't need to be sort of rocket ship growth. I'm not going to work super hard on it, but I am going to be consistent. And so I think, you know, patience combined with consistency over a long time scale can sort of approximate the same thing as hard work, but otherwise I'm Mm -hmm. on this sort of the same page as you. I think both of these ridiculous extremes or don't work hard at all, or also, you know, like the hustle porn, you you need to be sacrificing all your friendships and relationships and your health to like, those are both extreme and obviously flawed. Uh, The reality is that most founders, I think, especially first time founders are going to spend a lot of time doing things that like aren't right. They're not going to be perfectly efficient. They're going to spend a lot of time working on things that don't work out and time working on things that do work out. If you're extremely skilled, if you're DHH and you built the you know, rails and dozens of successful products, like you probably know exactly what to do and you can be super efficient and get a lot done in very little time. But most first-time founders, most solo founders are going to have to spend a lot of time just doing, making mistakes and doing a lot of drudge work. And they're probably going to have to work harder than normal to the extent that they don't get lucky or to the extent that they don't have the skills necessary to just sort of know what to do. So I'm right there with you. I, I agree with you. I don't know how successful your blog posts will be because it, it seems that people only want to hear the extreme, unrealistic answers. They don't want to know the truth. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I'm hoping that, that you know, some of this lunacy will end and people will just give, you know, be more acclimated to like what the obviously right answer is, which is like, you probably got to work hard, but not crazy hard.
0: Right. Very cool. We have one more question and then we're gonna wrap. Um, it's from Gezim from commercial He says, how can we use interviews if we're entering a new industry to get more customers? I guess, how do you suggest I overcome imposter
1: syndrome? How do we use interviews to master understanding? Yeah, understand
0: Yeah, how can we use interviews if we're entering a new industry to get more customers? I think what he's saying is he feels like an imposter when he's um, going in to interview other people. I mean, I think mm. I would say there like just you don't have to be the expert to interview people, right? Number 1. No. And then and then he's saying how can you use interviews if you're entering a new industry? So much like you started doing mm. interviews, right, to build your audience. He maybe is in the vertical of you know, maybe it's e-commerce, I mean it's commercial. Um but it's e-commerce or it's you know just some vertical like Totally. Have you seen people, other folks do this really well, or do you have advice for them, I guess?
1: Yeah, I would say you should, you should work backwards from the needs of your industry. There's a very specific reason I did interviews for indie hackers, because I saw these stories being shared online, I saw other people reading these stories, I saw the questions that they were asking, the people who were sharing these stories, I wrote down a list of what they wanted to learn, what problems they were trying to solve, and then I worked backwards from there to say, OK, well, how could I put these stories out in the best way? And interviews was the answer, because then I could sort of control the conversation and make sure certain information got in there. If I was starting in a different niche, I would have probably the same process, but I would come to a different conclusion. Maybe I wouldn't do interviews. Maybe I would just do stories. Or maybe I would do educational blog posts. Or maybe I would do um, you know some other form of content. So I would say, like don't, don't blindly copy the interview format. I think you should always work b- backwards on the problem you're trying to solve for people. Um, and that has sort of the added benefit that if you enter a new industry, uh, It's new to you. You're not sure exactly what people need, so it's like you need to take that first step of looking at people and seeing what they're doing, and talking to them, and figuring out the source of their problems, uh, just so you can tailor whatever you end up building to what they need. So I I would say don't don't necessarily feel attached to interviews. There have been a lot of indie hackers clone sites that do interviews that have not done very well, or that have tried taking it to different niches that haven't done very well uh, because they just didn't take the time to really figure out what works and what people in those industries need.
0: Awesome. Well, Cortland Allen, thanks again so much for spending a half hour with us today. Um, if you want to follow Cortland, I'm sure most of you are already, but on, he's on Twitter. He's C S Allen, and of course IndieHackers.com where he's a prolific interviewer, blogger and all the things. Next Tuesday, we have uh, I have Asia Matos coming on the show. We're going to talk about how to earn your first 100 customers. She did a great talk at MicroConf with that uh, title was that last year or two years ago? And so you can watch the talk, ask her questions about it, or you can just show up and, you know, hear what she's up to and kind of pick her brain on marketing stuff. So, Cortland, thanks again, man. Really appreciate you coming All right.
1: on. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Rob. Anytime.
0: So thanks to Cortland for coming on MicroConf On Air. And thanks to you for listening to this week's episode. And as always, supporting startups for the rest of us. I'll talk to you next week.